0: and thinking about questions that um, that we have about God, about life, about the faith. Uh, to some degree, we're asking questions, uh, many of them that are questions that we have as Christians and that have more of a, of a theological or a Christian worldview connection. For example, God and evil. How does that go together? Um, salvation, how are we rescued? And, and what does that mean to be coming back to God? Um, so some of those things are that way, but some of the questions are really go deeper, actually, than some worldview or um, a Christian perspective. They go down to the base of all human experience and questions. They are asking the big questions, the meta-questions of life. Why am I here? Is there meaning? Why is this going on? Is it really happening? What do I do? And so today we're going to talk a little bit about one of those questions that is the deeper kind of everyone asks at some point in their life this question. And that's the question, why are we here? And you may have asked yourself that today when you came to church. Why am I here? Why am I not in bed? This is a little deeper than why am I not? Why am I physically here into why, why am I here in life? Why am I taking up space on this planet? Why am I getting up each day and doing this or doing that and going through the day and then... Going to bed and then starting over. Why again and again and again the cycle of life? Sometimes these questions come to us when we're thinking about our life. At an early point, we might be finishing university or uh, lycée, high school and we'll be asking, you know, how How is my life going to have an impact in the world? What am I going to do later on? It might be, why am I in this job? You know, how did I get here? How can I get out? You know, why am I getting up? You know, eating breakfast, going off, doing this, coming back. Why? Is there any meaning besides the fact that I just do this again and again and again? And just in case you think you're the only one that thinks this, you're not. Everybody thinks it. And if you've never had these thoughts, don't worry, you will. So it is coming to you. I can promise you that. These are the kind of questions that oftentimes are very hard and elusive to answer. They're big questions with answers that go in, in many different directions. And, in fact, one of the um, things as people have been asking these questions for millennia, for th- thousands and thousands of years, is there are some answers that have come up. Um, and those ans- answers usually end with a ism at the end. So there may be um, answers that are about uh, naturalism. Or theism, and you may go, what in the world are those, some of those? And in fact, if you want, if you're looking for a new ism, a new philosophy of life, I have here printed off on the internet um, 234 different isms. In case you're looking to switch, you know, some of them are more specific, um, some of them are broader um, in terms of uh, of, of a world philosophy. Some of them are more specific about um, something about life, uh, but but we live by isms. Let me give you a couple of the isms that are in here, it's here in case you you need some. So, um, here are some of the isms. Uh, theism is a belief in God, that there is a God. But there's all kinds of different ways that can go from there. There could be pantheism, that God is in everything. In in everything, God is in the in the paper. That's, that's pantheism. There, there can be a monotheism. There is one God. There can be a polytheism. There are many gods that shape the world. Um, there can be rationalism, a belief that reason is the fundamental source of knowledge. That, that The only way you really can know is by thinking. And that's the only way. Skepticism. The belief that true knowledge is always uncertain, that you can't really know. You can think, but you can't really know. You can see how some of these are mutually exclusive, going different directions. Naturalism, that the world can be explained and understood in terms of natural forces alone. In other words, you don't need God because we can figure it out and think of it on our own. Uh, hedonism, the belief that pleasure is the highest good. I think, and I'll be talking about this, I think this is one of our favorites, to be very honest. Um, a- atheism, agnosticism, nihilism, the list goes on and on and on. But we have these isms that help us to try to make sense of the big questions. Um, why am I here? Nihilism might say, no real reason at all. Meaning? now. Nah. If you want to make up some meaning, that's fine, but there is no meaning for your existence. You just exist. Get over it. So it's nice it's nice, soft, cuddly, you know, uh, idea there. The reality is that most of us have a mixture of isms that we live and that we think about. Even though some of these, as I mentioned, are mutually exclusive, Uh, they don't mix and match, we like to mix and match. And we create our own little, you know, Paul McMenemy uh, philosophy and way of thinking about life. Um, In other words, I may have a, a, a stated monotheistic belief system, but I also expect my life to fit in with my ability to make sense of it and to reason it through. Rationalism. And I have a healthy dose that I like things to go the way I want them to go so that I feel good about it. Hedonism. See, we have a mixture. We live a mixture of of these isms in our life. Think about this statement. I don't enjoy my job. I think I'll I'll look for another one that makes me happy. What would that be? It's not hard. Hedonism, right. Why? Because the goal is that I, ultimately the goal of life is that I'm happy. And whatever it takes to make me happy, that's what I want. Hedonism. Let me give you an illustration that, that maybe helps you think about this. Whenever you're confronted or I'm confronted with a problem, and this is, I, I borrowed this illustration from someone else who thought it up that's much smarter than I am. Um, but what happens in that situation, a question comes up, you're not sure what to do, what do you do? Well, you call together. You may not know this, but this is what happens. You call together the committee, okay? The decision-making committee, in your mind. This, this is not like a group of people in a room, okay? This is a group of people in your head, okay? And you, and, you know, there's a few people that sit on the committee, and there's a couple people that always sit on the committee that you can never get off the committee. Your mother is on the committee, okay? <laughs> you know she's on the committee because her voice, you know, is going to be heard, going to be thought of in some way, shape, or form. Maybe some person, your peers are on the committee. You know, maybe you've had a great teacher or someone who's been a great influence in you. They're on the committee, Okay, all these, and then there's, then there's, by the way, hedonism has a spot on the committee, for sure, for, on all of our committees, you know, and, and then there's, a, there's maybe rationalism, or there may be other isms that sit on the committee, and your committee sits down and they decide, what, they give you a recommendation, okay, this is what you should do, now you may choose to follow it or not, but the committee makes recommendations, sometimes those recommendations happen really fast, you don't even think, of, you don't even know the committee has met, but the committee met, so, um, and some people on that, who sit on that committee, they're there, but they have no voice. For some of you, your mother's voice is the, uh, you know, it doesn't make a difference what the rest of the committee says, what mom said, that's it. For others of us, <clears throat> speak for myself a little bit here, uh, my mom's on the committee, but doesn't mean that I'm going to follow what she says, um, you know, sometimes she has a negative. You know, she doesn't have the best spot. Not that my mother's not a wonderful person, but, you know, it's my response, my, my, you know, messed upness. But But here's the reality. All these different influences are in our mind making our decision, helping us think about what should we do, what's right. The committee gets together and makes a decision. And your committee reflects your real values and your real beliefs, not your stated values and your stated beliefs. Do you, know, you get the difference? You may, your, your stated values and your stated beliefs have a, have a place at the table, but when the decision gets to be made, guess what? Your real values. Your real beliefs. That's the way you go. So oftentimes this is why we can say, I'm, I'm a theist, I believe in God, and I'm a monotheist, and I'm actually a Christian, I believe in Christian, and yet our committee decision can be going completely differently because other voices are more powerful in our mind. Let me give you an example of how this has worked here, which I find to be very fascinating and one of the most interesting parts of where we're at as a church right now. Uh, Stuart mentioned and did a wonderful job of of talking about, um, you know, we're moving forward as a facility, and I thought his analogy of a baby coming and getting ready for that is a great analogy. But you know what? When he said those things, you know what? Your committee got together. And your committee thought, what do I think about that? And again, for some of you, it was a very quick decision. Well, I agree or I don't agree or I don't like it. But the committee gets together and starts to think about what are the values? You know, what, what's really true about, about this? What, what do I do? Do we really need a new facility? Why? Who will benefit? What kind of facility do you need? Where will it be? What will it cost? What value will it be for me long term? Those are all the questions the committee, a steward, or any one of us gets up and starts asking, you know, has met. Some of your committee, by the way, they've already met and they've made a final decision, both, both directions, haven't they? Isn't that the way it works? But the committee gets together and assesses and asks, you know, and why would I invest in this as opposed to, world well, poverty, or in myself, or in my family? And all these questions on this committee come down to a sense of values and a sense of isms. Which philosophies am I going to live by? You might be going, is this a church? Is this a sermon? Don't worry. We'll get to it, okay? But I can't, I can't tell you what I'm going to tell you about why the purpose of life without exposing the reality that, you know what, we can say we're a Christian or we can say we're not a Christian and yet be incredibly influenced by all kinds of ideas and philosophies that are very powerful and some we need to realize that they're there if we're really going to deal with where we're going and who we are and why we're here how to answer that question. My sense is that one of the overriding isms for most of us is hedonism. The, the reality that pleasure is the most important thing for us. If you listen to people talk, and this is a fun experiment to do for the next few weeks, listen to them talk and see if it's not true. See if you don't hear phrases like this, you know, uh, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. This is not meeting my needs. This is not, you know, what those are all kind of hedonism saying I don't like what I have. I'm not experiencing the pleasure that I should experience. Pleasure—that pleasure can be long-term, not just short-term. You know, uh, for example, if I watch what I eat, uh, then I'll have the body that makes me happy and makes me feel good about myself. And so I, I say no to some pleasures now for other pleasures later. Uh, there can be short-term pleasures. If I eat the chocolate cake, I'll be happy. That's what I tend to do. You can—can can you tell? So. Um, We can have pleasures that can be uh, for another generation where we say, if I sacrifice for my kids, then they can be successful. And my pleasure is in what they will get and not in what I get. But we're still living for pleasure, someone's pleasure. Or it can be for ourselves, about the next promotion, the next salary level, um, that I'll be happy with the right right car, a right house, or a right spouse, or all those different things. And if we think about our own good and our own family or our own clan first then we under other people, don't we? We under their needs, their hopes, their dreams, and our participation with them, and we create conflict with others. We create wars. We create oppression. If you live by hedonism, then one, you won't really be happy for very long because <laughs> it never satisfies finally. And two, you'll have a very destructive life for a lot of other people because their happiness doesn't really enter into your happiness at all. So what is the answer? I think God gives us some answers in the two passages that Karin read and I want to look at really briefly uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 for some of the clues and then uh, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, for a little more clarity um, about this. I I find Ecclesiastes as a book to be an incredibly interesting book. Very honest look. Almost to some degree... This is the way the world is. Why is it this way? How do we interact with God? Not from necessarily a strong faith position, but from more of a rational just looking at things position. Some of the clues that I get from, um, from Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes 3 are this. Is God says that we, can see, we cannot see the whole scope of what God is doing from beginning to end. We only get to see pieces of what is really happening around us. And that therefore we need to trust God with what we cannot see and what we cannot understand. And that need to trust God does not diminish as life goes on. Because we will never ever completely see what is. What God's purpose, what He's doing. And yet, God has put this eternity thing in our hearts. A longing to see it. A desire for a need for meaning that our life fits and makes sense and has purpose. So on the one hand, we can't see it all. On the other hand, we want to see it all. And I don't know about you, but it's frustrating because I can't have what I want. I can't have what I long for. The other thing Ecclesiastes says in this, in this passage, what I think is very true, is this. Life is burdensome. Isn't that such a nice message to get on Sunday? Life's a burden. you know. And I think one of the reasons people like Ecclesiastes is they read that and they go, It is sometimes. It's painful. I don't like it. It's not what I want. And they go, Finally, God's speaking the truth. He's speaking to my experience. It will not always be to our liking. It will not always follow our plans. It will not always satisfy our souls. Ecclesiastes says that's life. And we say, can I get another opinion, please, on that? But that's the reality. And yet, it goes on, and it says this, that God has made life beautiful in its time. In other words, it's not all bad news. It's not all negative, that there's hope. That God has made life beautiful in times, in places, in spaces. And you know what? We know that's true too, don't we? Aren't there moments in our life we just go, it can't get any better than this? It can't be any more wonderful and, and soul-filling than this moment. And we go, man, this is great. That in His time, it's beautiful. Early on in the passage that Karen read, it says there's a time, you know, to, to, to dance. You know, and there's a time to mourn. There's a time, in other words, in all this space and place in which God has put a turn in our heart and where life isn't quite right, there's a time for everything that needs to happen. There's a space and place for the whole of human experience. And there is a variety that we cannot escape from. Change happens. And we have to let go sometimes of the past to embrace the future. As painful and as hard as it is. That is life. And then he goes on and says something that I think many people like. Uh, some of us go, really? And he says this, there is nothing better. She says this, I look at life from, from a perspective of just trying to figure out what is going on. From a, from a human perspective, he says there is nothing better but to be happy and to enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat, drink, and enjoy the fruits of their labor. And then he says this, for this... Is the gift of God. The ability to enjoy life is a gift. It's not something you just get. It's not something that just happens to you. It's not something that's just, you know, you're right. It is a gift that God gives. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but I think that's what He's saying. It's a gift to be able to enjoy, to sit back and savor the people around you, the life that you have, even the troubles and the problems to be able to enjoy. For many of us, the idea that God wants us to actually be happy, you know, just doesn't, those two things just don't go together, do they? But Ecclesiastes says, no, God wants you to enjoy life. He didn't create just to be a burden. And then lastly, from Ecclesiastes, he says, God's purpose is so that people should fear Him. Oh, there you go. We thought it was, it was getting to be so good, maybe. But I want to ask you a question. I think this needs to happen every time we hear, see that word in Scripture because in the Hebrew, the word fear can go off in lots of different directions all the way from absolute terror to honor and reverence. And the only way you can figure out what it means is by reading again the passage and thinking about which fits best. And it says this, and I would suggest the context here is that it says whatever God does is final, In other words, you can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't make it different. And I don't think that means that we should be terrorized by God. I think that means we should have a reverence. We should realize that, you know what? We shouldn't take God for granted. We can't edit God somehow out of the explanation and the understanding of life. He has the final say, not us. And so we live in reverence before God as we realize that we are living in the life He created as opposed to God living in the life that we created. And there is a large difference between the two. When I read Ephesians, or Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I read two things. Life is a jumbled mess. Fear God. Enjoy life. But remember, life is a burden. Don't forget, eternity is in your heart, but you cannot see all that you long to see come together. It's it's kind of a jumbled mess. And yet, the reality of what he says rings true, doesn't it? Don't you read that and listen to that and go, that's what I experienced. Not perfectly, not completely. It's true. So, if that's the case, why am I here? And I think 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33 gives us a very clear, simple answer. It says this, whatever you eat or drink, which is the context of the problem that Paul's dealing with in Corinth, or whatever you do, which is, by the way, the principle of life, do it for the glory of God. There you go. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Why do you exist? Why am I here? For the glory of God. Doesn't that help? That just fixes everything, doesn't it? Now you know exactly what to do. Okay, maybe we need to... Doesn't it raise about 10,000 other questions? Other issues? I have to live for the glory? I mean, who is God that He says I should have to live for the glory? And isn't it a bit egotistical for God to say you have to live for me? Doesn't that just kind of hit you a little bit wrong? You might even ask, okay, let's say that's true. What in the world is His glory that I'm supposed to live for or to bring to Him? And then lastly, probably in the most important question that we might be asking is, okay, if I live for the glory of God, if I do, what's in it for me? Oh, back to hedonism. Aren't we there again? So amazing. We always seem to come back around. Maybe it's just me. I don't think so. I think it's all of us. I want to kind of look at these very briefly and help us to think about this. What is the glory of God that we are to live for. Because I think that's important for us to ask and answer. And I believe the glory of God is the sum total of who God is in all of His perfection and all of His beauty. It's all of who God is. Being, and that perfection and that beauty when it's seen is, is beautiful and glorious and amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It's stunning. That's what the glory of God. And so we're to glorify God in the way that we live in such a way that somehow... Through us, who He is is shown to other people, to ourselves, to those who don't believe. In 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about the things that pollute and divide. And he basically says that when you live for the glory of God in such a way that your answers, your your life is reflecting God, um, that we don't unnecessarily get in the way of that good news. About God, And what he says towards the end of this is, I'm very careful how I live so that I'm not offensive to people, so that I don't keep them from the good news of God. I don't just think about myself, but I want to live so that they are not hindered by my actions and my activities. This means that the change comes in our question. Instead of what do I want to do, we start to ask the question, what benefit to God and others is there in what I do? What is the situation that I have and I'm experiencing that I can now live and act in such a way that the greatness of God can be seen, heard, and understood? How can God be reflected through what I do? That's hard. It also pushes us away from this idea of what's in it for me. One of the reasons I think that we don't like this living for the glory of God as it pushes and rubs against our hedonism, our desire to live for our own pleasure. Um, If I'm living for the glory of God and for the good of others, then I cannot live for my pleasure. Or can I? And I want to suggest strongly to you that yes, you can. And in fact, God calls you to. And you may be thinking, Paul, you are completely contradicting yourself. And I hope by the end you'll say, Maybe he's not. But I think that living for the glory of God is, is not mutually exclusive from my own pleasure as a person and, and living the way that God created me to be. What does living for the glory of God say about Him and about me? You know, what if, as strange as it may feel, the greatest pleasure that we can have is found in God and not in us? Not in whether I find the right mate, as wonderful as that is, not as if I find the right job, as great as that is, not as if I you know that the, my, my pleasure is in having a nice bank account, which would be nice. Not because I have a generous spirit. All those things are good. But the greatest pleasure is found in God, found in having satisfaction with him. Pleasure comes from glorifying Him rather than satisfying the screaming desires that I have again and again and again. I want to read you a quote from, from John Piper. John Piper wrote a book uh, called Christian, um, uh, Desiring God Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And those may be two phrases you say. How can those go together? How can uh, a Christian hedonist, someone who lives for pleasure and Christian, go together? Uh, it's worth the read to think about because he's thought, I think, through this issue very well. But I want to read to you a little bit from this because I think it it starts to answer some of the questions, is it really fair for God to say, Live for my glory? Is that is that right? Is that okay? He says here, he says, Therefore we read hundreds of, of Bible passages that show God passionately exalts in his own glory. We no longer hear them as the passions of an overweening, uncaring ego. We hear them as the rightful exaltation of one who is infinitely exalted. We hear them as as God's pursuit of our deepest satisfactions in Him. God is utterly unique. He is the only being in the universe worthy of worship. Therefore, when He exalts Himself, He thus directs people to the true and lasting joy. Let me say that again. Therefore, when He exalts Himself, He thus directs people to true and lasting joy. It says in Psalm 16, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. But when we exalt ourselves, we are distracting people from what will bring them true and lasting joy. So for us to be loving, we must exalt God. For God to be loving, he must, be, he must exalt Himself. Love is helping people toward the greatest beauty and the highest value and the deepest satisfaction and the most lasting joy and the biggest reward and the most wonderful friendship and the most overwhelming worship. Love is helping people towards God. We do this by pointing to the greatness of God. And God does this by pointing to the greatness of God. I think what Piper is saying to some degree is this. What could God point to besides Himself to give us the greatest pleasure and the greatest joy? What else is there? For Him to point any place else but back to Himself is actually to rob and to mislead and to deceive us. What He's saying is the greatest joy is found in God. And so God has to invite us into that joy to participate with Him and to enjoy. I love what Psalm 16 says. I want to say it again. In your presence, in God's presence, is the fullness of joy. In His right hand are pleasures forever. The psalmist says God invites you to live into those wonderful pleasures. This is a whole different way, by the way, of thinking about God, isn't it? Completely different. Not serving God as some slave serves a master, but serving God as someone who loves and who through experiencing and sharing their love, loves more and deeper and finds greater satisfaction, who sees more beauty the closer they get. I think there's two big steps in answering this question for us as people is to really evaluate this. Is living for the glory of God by enjoying Him forever enough? Is living for the glory of God so that we enjoy Him forever, is that where satisfaction is found? Is that the answer to why I am here? So that no matter what happens to my job, my spouse, my economic situation or a painful life event, I can always find my joy in God because He is the one constant who will always be there with me. That being in God's presence is my opportunity to glorify Him in that moment. And doing that means we need to relearn, learn to renew our mind, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, that the truth of God and His Word and the reality of my greatest pleasure being in knowing and glorifying Him and being with Him starts to permeate the way I think and live differently. Because the reality is when most of us hear the fact that we're called to live a life that glorifies God and enjoy Him forever, we kind of go, okay, sometimes that would be okay. But all the time... With all that I am. And if God is right, what that says to me is, you know, we still have a long way to go, including myself, in our thinking. In our thinking rightly about God. So I think hedonism is is the default button in our life. Uh, if I'm not happy, I must make a change so I can be happy. And by the way, we don't have to work at being a hedonist. Okay? It's kind of like if you turn on the uh, you know something, it's where it starts out. It's the default. It goes. It starts there. But Christian hedonism, as Piper calls it, we have to create what I would call a reset button, a different category, a different way of thinking, and that means it takes work. And so we start to question and we ask, what is my purpose? What is the purpose of my happiness? Instead of pleasure without God, is it possible that how I live with God, and if I live for His glory, that I can have pleasure in that? And the key to life and to pleasure is not found apart from God, but it's found in God. It's not trying to get away from God so I can enjoy, but being as close to God as I can in life so that I can have pleasure and enjoy. God says that our life's purpose is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. To do that, it takes skill, wisdom, God's people, God's Word, God's Spirit, and a lot of time, experience, and mistakes. But there is no greater pleasure and joy than Him know that there is a season for everything in life that god makes all things beautiful in their time even in the midst of the burdens and to learn that god fits in each piece and part as we glorify him that we get to share the greatest pleasure with him both now and forever you know christianity is not proved by the frowns on people's faces by their ability to keep certain laws and rules and regulations, but it is found in the joys and the tears of a life with God that is lived for His glory in a way that is good, satisfying, and pleasing for us. That's why you're here. That's why God put you on this planet. And you may feel like, Paul, I'm a long ways away from that, and I say, well, join the rest of us. But the great thing is we're in it together. And God has given us a significant amount of time to learn to create a new way to live so that one day we can say with the psalmist, in your right hand are pleasures enough forever and that I find my greatest joy in you. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, even now the committee meets in our heads. Assessing the words, speaking, making judgment, deciding if it makes sense, if it's true, if it's right, if it's what I want. Will it satisfy? And yet, Lord, you sit on that table as well, and you say to us, taste and see. Come and experience and you will discover that life is both hard and difficult and yet there is eternity in your heart and in my glory and in sharing that glory you can find the thing that pleases you the most no matter what goes wrong help us to take up your invitation to taste to touch, to see, to experience, to learn and even to fail that we might be restored to you. Help us to learn why we're here and to follow. We ask these things in Mm -hmm. Jesus' name. Amen.